Welcome to Cross Section, conversations at the intersection of faith, news and culture. Hi and welcome to this week's of Cross Section. I'm Jo Evans and it is 42 minutes past three and just before lunch today we had the much anticipated autumn statement from Jeremy Hunt. Later in the podcast, we're going to dig into the detail of the statement and what it means and how we might process the news as Christians, what we might do with it, with the help of Rachel Gregory from Christians Against Poverty. But first, I'm joined by Danny and Peter and uh, possibly going a little bit out of all of our comfort zones, we're going to talk about football. The World Football World Cup starts on Sunday and it's been just drenched in controversy. You might have seen a video from Joe Lysett, who is a bisexual comedian, calling out David Beckham as a sort of gay icon. David Beckham was one of the first footballers to pose for gay magazines. And Joe Lysett basically says, how can you know that this is part of your audience and yet you've taken a reported 10 million pound deal to be an ambassador for the World Cup in Qatar where it is illegal to be gay. He's said either David Beckham can back out of his contract and Jay Lysett will donate 10,000 of his own pounds to charities that support queer people in football or he's going to shred his own 10,000 pounds on live on a live stream social media feed. Uh, Peter, what what do you think David's going to do? What's your prediction? Oh, I don't think he's going to change his mind. I mean, Gary Neville was on Have I Got News for you, and I, I watched that, and he got similarly kind of pushed. I mean, he did say he wasn't getting as much money as Beckham, and he said, "Oh, look, I should go because then I can highlight the issues." And uh, it was Ian Hislop who just said, "Well, no, you could just refuse to go and highlight the issues. Uh, you're kind of trying to have your cake and eat it by taking the money and then pretending you're going to make some big stand about it." So, I mean, I think it firstly exposes a hypocrisy. And actually, this is just one of many issues. There's a whole series of human rights issues that are at play here and the corruption of FIFA. So at so many levels, this is a mess. And apart from anything else, I'm not watching it because Northern <laughs> Ireland aren't there and Ireland aren't there. So I'm just, point of principle, I'm not watching the World <laughs> Cup anyway. We didn't make it through. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm not watching it. I'm not, not watching it out of principle. I probably will watch some of it, but my interest in football is relatively minimal. Although I was disappointed to find that a meeting on Monday had been moved purely to accommodate an England game uh, due to a certain member of the Evangelical Alliance staff who will remain nameless. A very senior (laughs) member who you should... Are you suggesting the most senior member may have some football allegiances? Quite possible. He's he's a little bit more passionate about football than, than I am. But... It's interesting. So FIFA uh, said something a couple of weeks ago, basically saying they want people to concentrate on the football and not the politics. And everyone largely mocked FIFA for trying to for trying to control what people would talk about. And it is interesting that a lot of people are talking about the politics, both of uh, the Qatari regime, but also of FIFA and the process that led to this. I started watching last night the Netflix documentary all about the history of uh, FIFA and seeming endemic uh, scandals and backroom deals and everything else under the sun. So I think that's interesting. I, the thing I find fascinating about the Joe Lysett story 
he's prepared to put his money where mm-hmm. his mouth is. And I, I don't know. I don't know if he'll go through with shredding ten thousand pounds, but actually, he's making a statement. Like, there's been a lot of attention. Peter Tatchell uh, went to Qatar and was briefly detained, I think, uh, for wearing a t-shirt and gay rights messaging on. Actually, I think sometimes as Christians, we need to be a bit more bold. Uh, So Qatar is number 18 on Open Doors World Watch List. It's a place where it is difficult for Christians to believe, particularly for uh, Qatari uh, people to believe. There's a lot of uh, foreign people, uh, foreigners in Qatar. They have more freedom. It's not 100% 100% easy for them, but it is easier. Whereas for people who are converting to Christianity from Muslim uh, backgrounds, it's far harder. And I think actually, I am, I think seeing the amount of attention that has been placed and given to some of the, some of the abuses of LGBT people in Qatar makes me think, actually, I think we need to speak up a lot more for the abuses that, that Christians face in those places. And I think it's an encouragement for us and to do that. And I, I think Joe Lycett is a great example in many ways. So this is a man who legally changed his name to Hugo Boss in order to make a point. I can't right now remember what the point was, but he did do that. But actually, there's something... There's something... <laughs> Yes, maybe. Yeah, that's not ideal. But there is something for, I think, for us as Christians to learn in what he's doing in that he's making a very bold and very public statement, but he's doing he he manages to do it with humor and lightness and winsomeness, I guess. I kind of hate that word, but that is what he's doing. And maybe there is a lesson that we could take as Christians. You know, why, why, why isn't anyone speaking up about the religious freedom record? I think it's great quite like so a little tangent bear with me a second but this week there were some hearings in Scotland and a lady turned up in a suffragette scarf she was removed while three committee members were wearing the rainbow lanyard and the point was being made which one of these stories is acceptable and it seemed to be fine to say we're for for the LGB rights but the people who were essentially there campaigning around feminist rights at that moment were excluded and it's back to which stories are allowed. So the, the England group, team flew out on a plane with Virgin, but the plane had Rainbow, I think it's called. And this was their kind of big stand. When you're like, well, it wasn't a great stand. But secondly, as we've said, what about all the other issues at play? So why aren't we speaking more about religious freedom? And that we are. So we're saying, yeah, women's rights, unfair trials, the labor laws. I mean, the number of migrant workers who lost their lives building the stadium. It's just incredible, as in it's tragic, and we need to reflect on all those things and the religious freedom. So we do need to be more creative. We do need to get a lot better. We need a Joe Lysett, a comedian who draws attention and says, yeah, there is a problem here and let's talk about it. Uh, so I, I absolutely agree. We need to get more creative in our engagement with some of these issues because all these things are at play and it raises this crazy thing where in a sense, we all know it. We all think it's ridiculous. We all know FIFA's corrupt through and through. They've had corruption allegations. That's not just an idea. I watched the Netflix that you were talking about, Tani, too. <laughs> like, unbelievable the amount of money spent on this. We all know it's wrong, and yet it all still goes ahead, and lots of people are just going to watch and go, well, sure, Something that I found interesting is that the issue of the freedom of LGBT people and the human rights in regards to migrant workers those two issues have essentially been conflated of, you know, they all speak of, yeah, the civil rights issues in Qatar. But those issues haven't been separated in that one is a fallout of it being a very explicitly open 
openly Muslim country and its law reflects Islamic law. Whereas the the issue around migrant workers, that's not that's not a reflection of Islam. That's a you know that's a reflection of it being a, a bad regime. And I, yeah, I've just found that interesting how people aren't wanting to acknowledge that the LGBT half of the story is very heavily tied with the Muslim faith. And that brings me on to a philosophical question for you both to kind of round up this segment. <laughs> yeah. Oh no. I think I know your answers, but I want to hear your thinking. I want to see the working out. In the UK, we've talked about how we're in kind of a post-Christian era. Now, I don't think we want the law to enforce kind of Christian law, like Christian way of life necessarily. What Talk me through how we weigh up kind of wanting this desire to be a Christian country that reflects Christianity in the way we we live whilst wanting people to have freedom of thought and freedom of choice. It's a nice, easy one. So Chris Wright is an Old Testament thinker and theologian. He's written a wonderful book on Old Testament ethics. And he says a lot of what the Bible says applies to God's people, the chosen out ones. There's a higher standard, like giving a tithe. We give a tenth and we give more than that. Those apply to God's people. Then there are good laws for the land that you should let the land rest uh, every seven years and you should let people rest every seventh day. Those are good laws for everybody. And he distinguishes between the two. And I find it a really helpful framework for stuff that we say, this is just good for everybody. Some of the stuff we'll be talking about around the, the autumn statement shortly in the interview we, we recorded with Rachel. We're like, this is good stuff. We want to read out, reach out for the poor and the marginalized. That's, that's everybody's a divine image bearer. Nobody should be forced against their will to work and put into unsafe working conditions. Then there are the rules that apply to those of us who are Christians. God said, look, sex is reserved for inside marriage between a man and a woman. That's a good thing to do. And we want to articulate that, but we're not going to force that on other people. Giving your income away to those who are poor is a good thing to do, but we're not going to do laws to do that. We tried that. There used to be laws where you had to give money, 10% of your money to the church. Everybody, state laws. That's not a way I want to see going. And we're seeing... so. I think Chris Wright has set a really useful framework as to how we try and bring those laws forward. Those that apply to the people, the called out people, the Christians, and those that apply to the land and the whole kind of culture that are good for everybody. And I think I would add that I think when it comes to us taking biblical principles and applying it into uh, political positions and political policies, sometimes that's relatively straightforward. Sometimes we can uh, take what we read and understand in the scripture and see how that is translated into political policy. And actually, there are things where as Christians, we can have a large degree of agreement that this is good for society, that this is good for everyone, and this is a way that uh, policy should be developed. In other areas, one, there may well be disagreements on some of the means. We might have a principle or an idea that we draw from scripture, but how it happens, we're not always clear on. But I think it's that principle of how are we applying what we read in the Bible and what we know from God's character? How do are we applying those ideas into policies that is for the good of all of societies? And when it comes to laws, that's really our primary framework is what's where how is this helping us understand what's good for all of society well considering i gave neither of you any warning of those questions of that question that is a very articulate answer from you both well done 
We're now going to go back in podcast time to earlier, just a little bit earlier this afternoon, when we interviewed Rachel Gregory from Christians Against Poverty, all about the autumn statement, which was even earlier. We're now joined by the Senior External Affairs Manager for Christians Against Poverty, Rachel Gregory. Hi, Rachel. Hi, Jo. It's great to be with you. It's so nice to have you with us. Where are you joining us from today? So I'm up in Bradford today in West Yorkshire, which is where Kath is based, so I'm at our head office today. Okay, so you're here for us to grill you, essentially, about the autumn statement. So my first, my first question is, why, why is it called the autumn statement? Um, so we normally have two big announcements from the Chancellor each year. We've seen him up on his podium a few times uh, extra than normal in, in the last couple of years with the, the pandemic and cost of living crisis. But in a typical year, we get two statements a year, one in March, which is the budget, and then the autumn statement uh, in November. So it's, it's one of two sort of key uh, moments where government announces their plans around spending, finance, and sort of health and state of the economy. And, okay, that makes sense. And what do you think, were there any big surprises today? Well, you never quite know what you're going to see. I think... I think it was a fairly well-rounded budget for what we were expecting. We've, we've all known in the pre-briefing that there was this big fiscal hole that they wanted to fill. We weren't sure quite how many billions of pounds that was going to be, but we were expecting that about half of that would be in cuts to public spending, about half would be in, in tax changes, and that is what we got today. We were really, really pleased to see uh, benefits upgraded in line with inflation, and especially that the benefit cap was raised to mean that people actually receive that money. We weren't sure if, if they would follow through with that. Um, but largely speaking, I say it was as expected, although there's still some disappointments within that. Though I think one thing that took me by surprise was uh, there was a, a decision announced to delay uh, when certain groups are moving into universal credit. So some groups that were due to move across in the next few years won't now move across until uh, to 2028, 20, uh, and that is a cost-saving measure. So that is means that some of the, they they will be losing out on some money that they could really do with. So I think that's a bit mm. of a shame and not something that I'd anticipate. Do you think the government had just managed this very well politically? Because it seems like most people are moderately happy with what's been announced. Uh, I'm not saying everyone's ecstatic on either side. Some people are annoyed on the left. Some people are annoyed on the right. But it feels like they've done a pretty decent job of the expectation management ahead of time, that they were able to fulfill people's expectations in terms of uh, raising benefits and raising pensions. Do you think that's happened to the extent that actually people are maybe a bit, not complacent, but almost actually we wish we'd pushed for a bit more, that maybe, maybe, they, maybe more could have been got out of this? And... and, and and do you think there will be further demands? Because that's what we've seen over the last year. Every time we think the government's done enough, a couple of months later, there's demands for more. Do you think in a few months' time, there will be more demands for the government to take further action? Yeah, I, I mean, I think there are more demands now, even if you look at some of the responses like we've been putting out today and, and others, and, and you will have been uh, as well. Um, our response has very much been, we've avoided the worst case scenario. I, I think you're right in, in, in a lot of what we could have seen, we're expecting that we could have seen some quite deep cuts to public services now, and actually a lot of that has been built into what you might call like fiscal drag, so 
um, not increasing spending in real terms in years to come. And so you, you get a saving um, like that gradually. Uh, but in terms of, you know, upraising and sort of support for those on the lowest incomes, you know, we heard the government were promising that they were going to support the most vulnerable. And I think some of us, we were very fearful that we weren't even going to get the basics like the uprating of benefits. And I think, you know, we did start putting that at the forefront of our ask, but it wasn't the only thing we wanted to see. And, and I think, you know, we still haven't seen the situation change from this statement. There's still lots of lots of people that are going to be in really difficult situations this winter. You know, we know churches gearing up to offer warm banks. They're still going to be needed. Uh, and, and actually what we've heard today is, is some of the support we've had this year being eased off next year slightly in terms of the energy price guarantee and, and some of the cost of living payments. We'll be at, at lower rates and, and other groups not getting them where we've all had £400 and then £150 earlier in the year, which has helped. So yeah, I do think there's definitely a case for more. We will, there will be more demands. But I think also it's really key for us to be thinking about, you know, what's the direction of travel for the future? That's what we didn't hear very much about today. We had a little bit around energy costs of um, our investments to try and bring down the cost of energy longer term and energy efficiency for homes as well as some short-term support. But on the incomes, we didn't see very much of that. And, and this is a problem, you know, our debt advisors have been seeing for years. We're seeing a really large number of people who are really struggling to balance a budget just to cover their essentials at the moment. But that's been the case for a lot of the people we've helped for five years or, or more. So, so, you know, what what are the steps that are going to be taken that's going to help reduce poverty longer term? And, and there was really no news on that front today. So, Rachel, can I can I come in on that and ask two, two kind of related questions? It feels like... A few months ago, we were right on the cliff edge. This was like cataclysmic. It could be game over so many people. And it feels like we staved off that. And I think that's what you're saying. But also, have we done that to a degree by basically putting everything still in the long grass? Fiscal drag, I think you called it. Is there a certain extent we've pushed a lot of hard decisions still out? So we are paying more. Inflation's running at, I think it's 11.1% today. The average bills for a household to go up £854, but it feels like there's still a fair degree of spending. Nearly everybody got something, as Danny said. And have we just pushed the difficult decisions that ultimately surely have to be taken at some point out? So two, two bit, have we have we saved the cliff edge? Am I right? Have I, and then have we, but have we done it really still by pushing it down a generation fundamentally? And are we just saying, kids, you'll pay for it later? <laughs> well, I'm not sure that we have saved off the, the cliff edge because... The announcements today are all for next year or from April. Um, so that hasn't changed. The only thing that changed for this winter was um, people who don't heat their homes through gas or electric. They use a different fuel like heating oil. Their support's doubling from 100 to 200 pounds. But everything else is in for next year. Um, and we, we know we've got clients we're seeing now who the cost of living payments they've had have gone. They've got arrears on the energy, arrears on the rent. And, and the release for them isn't here. In April, they will get some more help when the benefits are uplifted by, by 10%, but the sort of adequacy of our social security at the moment is so low. Um, when, we're, when we're working with people who are in the worst situations, often we're short like 200, 250 pounds a month for them to, to have a sustainable budget. And so that isn't gonna bring people back to the level that they need. And so we do need to look more fundamentally at that. Uh, and, and I don't know, it's, it's trickier to answer sort of what this all means for the longer term, like who's going to pay the bill further down the line. There was sort of new fiscal rules announced today about bringing down debt to GDP and 
and making sure that it falls in the fifth year and five-year rolling cycle and and, you know I think time will tell what happens to debt as a percentage of GDP but um, we definitely got some challenging times to come next year although there was in the forecast good news that inflation their forecasting is going to start to fall into next year falling down to nine and then uh, seven I think the year after Mm. so we'll see that teetering off but you know they're still high and as we know low-income households face the brunt of that just yes uh, well on Wednesday the figures came out showing inflation at the highest rate in 41 years and and how inflation is even higher for low-income groups who spend more on basics like food and energy it's something we need to still keep talking about it's definitely not gone away Rachel, firstly, I'm sorry, my uh, my flat buzzer was rudely trying to interrupt you then. I think the postman's just arrived. But more importantly, um, when, I'm, when I'm sort of feeling my most hopeless about the financial situation of the UK, it's that thing of, of just how, where, what could possibly solve the issues that we're facing. So I guess kind of connected to Peter's question, what do you think the government should have done to or should be promising to meet the need more but how do they do that without just pushing these problems onto the next generation i mean we, we were hoping to see that some of the steps that they've announced today that will happen in april could have happened ahead of winter because we know that that's going to be really um and also one thing in particular that is that they would that the government would unfreeze local housing loans which holds back the support that a lot of people get towards their rent costs. And that was frozen for a number of years. It was causing a lot of problems, but it was uh, increased to match um, a certain level of, of market rents last year. Uh, but it's been frozen again. And, and so that's one of the biggest drivers for the uh, broken budgets that we see. But I think really you know, we, we did see positive announcements around increasing uh, living wage, but that doesn't benefit some groups if you're under uh, 23 I think it is, you, you, receive a lo- you don't receive the national living wage, you receive the minimum wage, which is much lower. So just removing some of these design flaws, you know, these, these uh, cliff edges that just don't mean anything. You've still got the same cost if you're you know, under 23, if you're 24. Uh, and, and that is just looking at things holistically. Actually, like, what we would hope to see, actually, is the government to sit down and say, like, let's do a review. What does it cost to live to a standard that we will accept here in the UK? What does that look like from our social security system wages and and then what are the steps to help us get there and so it's you know having a plan of action that then can be properly thought through about how that happens how that's sequenced and you know how that's funded and, and supports the sort of growth agenda and all those things that are of course really important for our economy it's so easy it's just so easy to sort of lose sight and do sort of incremental policy changes that come together to cause some real um, we put a question out on social media today, which we do every week. And I think I do think you've sort of answered this question, but I was just looking at some of the questions we got in. And one of the questions was, do, you, do we think that the well, let me let me get the phrasing up. Will the new budget actually protect the poorest? Do we think that it's actually, yeah, designed to, to help people in crisis? I think that it isn't going to stop the poorest facing crisis, but I think it was a budget that did seek to put households more at the forefront than we feared it might. 
uh, they, there is a lot more support in there for uh, targeted to poorer households. Uh, so, for example, uh, next year, people, everyone on means tested benefits is going to receive £900 help with the cost of living uh, increases. Um, and so, there is definitely positive things in there that are, are, have got their focus on the most vulnerable households. What it does, though, is it, it puts it in the form of these like one-off of arbitrary level payments and you know what we know is that uh, groups that disproportionately face poverty like people with disabilities larger families their needs are much higher because of those circumstances uh, and what we what we've got here is sort of flat rate support so it doesn't really i don't think it fully understands um the the needs of the most vulnerable and, and why and what the circumstances that are leading to that and uh, so i think it is a budget that's attempted to put those groups and those people at the centre but has sort of missed the mark in that and, and actually one of the things we've been talking about ahead of this that we would have really liked to see was government really engaging with people that need the support and people facing the hardest most difficult situations around cost of living and actually inviting them in to design what was going to replace the energy price guarantee and that sort of thing and I think that's what we haven't seen and that's why we've got uh, what we've got today is sort of one off arbitrary level payments that don't sort of fully speak to what people are going through and I don't think that's too late I think that'd be really positive if we saw more engagement between government and you know, churches that are on the front line and, and the people that were well that leads me really nicely onto my last question because I, I feel like you really helped us to think critically and carefully through what we've heard you've also given us you know reasons for hope which is needed and helpful but, but yeah, my last question is what can, what do you think Christians, obviously you work for Christians Against Poverty, what can Christians and churches and yeah, I guess those two groups really, what, what can we be doing practically in this moment? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's so much that the church does and does so well. And, and so it's just, you know, to continue that and more of us, to, more churches to, to get involved and, you know, amazing food bank networks and I know there's over a thousand churches who signed up with the warm welcome initiative that CAP has also been part of this winter to offer warm spaces and you know it's stuff that we wouldn't hope that we have to offer but it does offer hope to people and and to be able to get alongside people when they're really struggling and, and support them like that I think it's a really important thing for us to be doing. We are also just launching our Christmas appeal at CAP where individuals and, and churches ask them to donate to help us give out more emergency uh, aid to people this winter through fuel vouchers and, and emergency food shops and that sort of thing. But I think it's just really to look out for the needs in your community, like who are the groups that you can help, what can you do to, to support and let people know that they're, they're not alone. And personally, I'm involved with an event coming up in my community where we're offering um, free uh, shopping of Christmas gifts for local families and sort of kids' activities. It's just great to do this stuff together, and it, I just hope it, you know, it builds new links that just make our community stronger and more resilient, and we understand each other better. And and actually, you know, thriving church, seeing lives transformed, it's all part of having a society that is united and cohesive and compassionate, and and, and that's what we need to to bring about a better future. I think, from my point of view, it's just 
It's great, Rachel, to have you on. It's one of the reasons I love being part of a membership organization. I'll state the obvious again. That is what we are. We have organizations, our members like Christians Against Poverty, so that when we come to a situation like this, we can get to the expertise that you have. And like, for example, my biggest takeaway is actually, I thought the cliff edge had been pushed back and you're saying, no, not as much maybe as I realized. And just a real reminder that Lou, this has done some things. It's incredibly like parlous situation for many people out there, but the church is is doing this incredible job. So, you know, our church has Christians Against Poverty. We have the food bank. We have a number of programs within that, and, but there's always more to be done. But I'm just really encouraged in the warm banks and all that's going on in this moment. So, I mean, a big thank you to you for all that you're doing, but also that the organization's doing. And I just love Cap's absolute passion for the biblical mandate around that. Helping those in debt and crisis, always signposting towards the church and the community gathering around them. And that's the kind of USP, as I understand it, that makes a difference. The debt counseling is fantastic, but it's this, it's the wraparound services and support that church offers in this moment. And that's why we love to be part of the wider church. So thank you. Yeah, absolutely. You sum it up really well. <laughs> Thanks so much for being with us today, Rachel. I'm sure we might be sending you an email sometime again soon in the near future. <laughs> Thank you so much. It's been brilliant to be with you. Thank you. Thanks so much, Rachel. And as I alluded to in that interview, you can follow us on social media. That's at EAUK News on Twitter. On Instagram, it's Evangelical Alliance. And you are always welcome to email us cross.section at eauk.org. We love to hear from you. So finally, I want to, it's going to be a bit of smattering of news stories, but I want to start by talking about Rishi Sunak, Ukraine and the G20 summit. So it seems that Rishi's main sort of thing at the G20, this gathering of world of, of the, the top most, what's the word, the top 20 richest countries in the world gathering in Bali. I wouldn't mind a trip to Bali. That's a side note. They've gathered <laughs> to discuss it. And, and Rishi's main point seems to have been that Russia needs to pull out of Ukraine. Putin wasn't himself at the G20 summit. Rishi called him out on that, said he should be there. Um, so Rishi has sort of been the ultimate example of speaking truth to power. Again, philosophical question for you both. Do How, how do we want our country's, our nation's leader, Rishi Sunak, to be weighing up? He's He's done the morally right thing of speaking truth to power, of calling Putin out for the atrocities happening in Ukraine. And I guess with that comes a slight putting of the UK at risk because, you know, Putin does not like being criticised on a public stage and he quite frequently has threatened to retaliate when that happens. So, you know, which, which is the right move for Rishi Sunak there? I, if I'm honest, I don't think it was a very risky move for Rishi. I think you have a collective action across the global stage. Everyone is having a go at Russia. So if you're the only person speaking out and having a go, that's where it takes courage and guts and you risk uh, being ostracized on the global stage. At, at present, frankly, it would be it's far more costly to, for example, say, hang on a minute, we're the Ukraine's actually responsible for the missile that landed in Poland. So, so to cast doubt against the Ukraine is actually a far harder thing to say. So I think it's good that Rishi Sunak spoke out against Putin. I think because of the journey the world has been on this year, there are so few ties now. We, we are, we have already kind of counted the cost 
of uh, speaking up against Russia. So actually, I think it's quite easy to do. I think the challenge then is to back that up with actions because otherwise it can run the risk of looking like he's grandstanding on the global stage to be seen to be acting tough. But is it actually being backed up with action? Yeah, I think I'd largely agree. I mean, truth to power is always good. Uh, When you're uh, the prime minister, you are you are power, so that's a slightly different equation. There was another interesting moment of the G20 when uh, Xi Jinping, the Chinese leader, tried to essentially call out uh, Justin Trudeau, the Canadian Prime Minister, for leaking their conversations. Now, it's portrayed in various ways that you know Trudeau ran off with his tail between his legs. I am not a fan of Trudeau, I'll be quite open. He does his diplomacy via his socks, and there's little that I agree with him on generally. But actually, I think I was a bit harsh. He seems to have pushed the Chinese pretty hard about their interference with elections. Uh, he has pushed them on their espionage and other matters. And Zhao Jiping didn't like that and tried to kind of tell them off and, and bully them a bit. And I think we are seeing this really interesting place in international diplomacy of some pushback going on, very conflicting stories. Uh, Mark Sayers, uh, well, I'm a fan of, we're a fan of, I think in this <laughs> podcast, talks about this grey zone moment that we're in. We're in this kind of strange area where there are these various stories at the, at the global level going on. We're in this grey transition between different areas. There's not a kind of clear who's in charge, what's going on. All sides are against each other. There's lots of different kind of conflicting. It's very complicated trying to navigate the international space. And in the midst of that, I think our job then as Christians is to pray for those who are in charge. But also it reorientates us in the kind of fog of the grey zone. We go back into uh, where's our orientating light? Where's our compass? What drives us? And I think that's a push for us as Christians to reorientate back into the God story rather than some of these cultural stories at this moment. But there endeth my sermonette. Sorry, Jim. Uh, you said lots of interesting things, and I know you've got more interesting things to say. But I just, I just have to to ask for clarification. What do you mean by diplomacy by his socks? Ah, Trudeau. See, I lived in Canada for a while, so I'm probably a bit more into it. But Trudeau is is relatively well known in in Canada for he literally wears socks to do with. Uh, I mean, gay rights was one of the more famous ones uh, or uh, First Nations people. And he wears various socks to show his policy without saying anything and gets photographed and everybody knows. And he is a little touchy-feely for my liking and, and, and whatever. But anyway, he does. Yeah, he shares his messages via his socks. Thank you. Right. Maybe that's the new. Well, I was going to say, I was going to say, socks and wear them on this podcast, Joe, and and there's two sort of different ends of a spectrum there, isn't there? I just let's just touch on the subject matter that is Donald Trump. Over to you, Peter. Oh, if we have to, I mean, he's launched his (laughs) bid for 2024. Uh, That was no surprise. He telegraphed. I guess what's most interesting to me in this moment was just watching. The various commentators, I mean, Mike Pence has definitely stepped back, the former vice president, and possibly might even run against him, as in step back from supporting Trump's very young. But lots of Christian right, right of center commentators, people who would certainly have strong allegiances within the Christian constituency are also extremely nervous. There seems to be a fundamental sort of stepping back from where Trump is at the minute and what's going on. So I'm just intrigued by that. I think there's, there's a game-changing shift going on. I mean, listen, what do I know about international politics? We'll see where that ends up. But I, I think that's noteworthy at this moment. He has not got the obvious support that he had last time amongst white evangelicals who were held to be responsible for him getting in before. Well, there's your smorgasbord of the week's top political headlines through the lens of our Christian faith, as we try to do every week. 
here on cross-section to think what difference does following Jesus make as we respond to the new stories of the world and yeah maybe this week we can think about how we can be more Joe Lycett and speaking up about the freedom of Christians at the Football World Cup as it kicks off on Sunday. Thank you so much for being with us and oh I should remember to say that we will not be here next Friday so so don't don't get sad as you look for us in your whatever podcast platform you use however you can click subscribe and the following Friday you won't even have to to put a reminder in your phone we'll just be right there when you open your podcast app so not here next Friday we'll be back the week after thank you so much for listening see you soon cross section conversations at the intersection of faith news and culture Hello, I'm Chris Ringland and I work as part of the Scotland team. Yes, I'm the same Chris that gets mentioned at the end of our episodes for putting the podcast together. Thanks for listening to Cross Section. We hope you really enjoyed it. Make sure you subscribe on your podcast platform, share the episode on social media and tell your friends and family so that they can enjoy it too. Thanks for listening and have a great week.